0: We thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word, Lord. And God, we ask that you would just bless this time, open up our ears, and open up our eyes to hear and see wonderful things out of your word, Lord. This is your word, Lord. It's powerful. It's alive. It changes. It challenges. It convicts. It tears down and it builds up, Lord God. And we just pray that your word would have free reign today in this place and in our hearts and in our lives, and that Christ would be glorified. Father, you know every need in this room, God, and your word speaks to every need, Father, no matter what text we preach from, Father, for the Holy Spirit is alive, applying that word to each life individually, and we pray that you would do it today, in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Um, Today we're going to read a very exciting portion of scripture. Um, I want you guys to stay in your seat because once we turn and you see what we're going to read, some of you might start jumping up and down because it's just such an exciting portion of Scripture. And uh, how many love reading exciting portions of Scripture? Really, how many turn and you go to your favorite verse, there's portions of Scripture that when you read, like last week we heard an awesome sermon about Joseph. Every time I read the story about Joseph and his brothers in a confrontation, I cry. It's just a beautiful story. But today we're going to read a a really beautiful, beautiful portion of Scripture. And everyone turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Are we there? Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. How many like to read lists of long names? (laughs) Genealogy. So-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so. How many after like 32 begots, you change the page and you go to the good stuff? Let's be honest. How many have gone to the pages where you see the genealogies in Scripture, especially like in Numbers and in uh, 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 um, uh, Chronicles, you see like 32 pages of like lists of names. And you just go through. How many do that? You go through it let me get to the good stuff, right? Yes. We're not going to do that today. <laughs> We're going to go to the good stuff. And the good stuff actually is the genealogy of Matthew. Um, And uh, let's just read. Matthew chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadad, and Aminadad the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jephaniah was the father of Shelatiel. And Shelatiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, the father of Ab- Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim. And Eliakim, the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. I need a drink after that. (laughs) Why would Matthew start out with the genealogy. Seems kind of strange, right? When you go to a book and there's a list of forty-seven names, and half of them we can't even pronounce, and most of them we really don't know much about. The first half we know a lot about, and then in the middle we know some, but at the end we really don't know too much about what's going on here. And Matthew was writing to the Jews. Matthew was a Jew. Matthew's real name was Levi, and he was writing his gospel specifically to be a testimony and a witness to the Jews. He wanted to evangelize his own countrymen. So he wrote a gospel specifically geared towards Jewish people. And so Matthew starts out with a genealogy. And uh, listen to what a commentator says about this genealogy. This genealogical record is important because it is an Irrefutable proof that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Christ of God, the Son of David, the promised seed of Abraham. The Jews, from the very beginning of their history, kept precise genealogical records. The scribes and the Pharisees studied these records with great care. They consistently raised questions about endless genealogies. If they could have this proved, Jesus' genealogy, That alone would have been sufficient grounds for their rejection of Jesus as the Christ. But they couldn't do it. Though the Jews argued about many things and constantly accused the Lord Jesus of horrible evils, they never once brought up his ancestry. In fact, to this day, though religious heretics abound, who try to undermine our faith in Christ, I know of none, this commentator says, that have ever attempted to discredit his genealogy. The reason should be obvious to anyone. It's flawless. Mm -hmm. What is the deal with genealogies? I mean, do we really... How many study family trees? You know, I read an article that, last year, they spent over $2.8 billion of people trying to find out who's where they came from. I want to know where my ancestors came from. People have, you know, visions of grandeur, like, oh, my grandfather, I wonder if he fought in the Civil War and rode a white horse and, you know, was a champion. And so people get really excited. And they go and they spend all this money on Ancestry.com and they want to look at their genealogy. And then they spend this money and they find out, like, my uncle was a drunk. You know, my other uncle was a murderer. My other uncle was was an immoral person. And they get depressed and they're like, you know, what's the use? And they give up. Because genealogies were important in Jesus' day. Genealogies were like a resume today. To the Jew, a genealogy was a vital thing in his life. Listen, this is my record. This is where I came from. This gives me some clout. Like my great, great, great uncle was a famous prophet. And people would listen to you. So to the Jew, a genealogy was a very, very serious thing. Uh, It was very important. And we're going to look at some reasons why. But some of the characteristics of a genealogy. um, They were meant to be selective. In other words, in Matthew's genealogy, he didn't just write everyone on the list and put it in the genealogy. There's a lot of people left out of this genealogy. But that was normal for that day. He wanted to put specific people in his genealogy that would highlight specific things. He wanted to make a statement of who Jesus was and why he came and who his family members were. So he added specific people in the genealogy. For instance, if you were, say, going for a job as a college professor, and on your resume, you would say, you know, um, I did a lot of plumbing. That wouldn't fit the job description you're going for. Oh, that's great, you did plumbing, but have you ever taught a college class before? Well, no. You want to put on your resume what's going to get you favor with the people that are reading your resume. Right? So, a genealogy is very similar. It was very specific for the information that was put in. And some names were omitted. Like, you want to take out Uncle Harry, who was the drunk. You know, you don't want him on your resume. You want to hide him back then. Here's my other uncle who graduated from college. Yeah, Uncle Harry, no, 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 no. You know? So a genealogy was very important. Also, when we read that list, so and so is the father of so and so, so and so the father of so and so, so and so the father of so and so. Well, in a genealogy, you have to understand that when it says so and so is a father of so and so, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the direct. Son of that person it could be the grandson the great grandson or even the great great grandson so it doesn't necessarily mean the direct descendant and that's important because when we look further into this we'll understand the ability for Jews to trace their lineage back to one of the tribes was vital during that day listen to this Philippians chapter 3 verse 5 The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul could trace his lineage back to the tribe of Benjamin. He says this, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul was able to, people were saying, Paul's not really Jewish, don't listen to him. Paul was like, no, listen, I was a Jew. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was trained under the best rabbis. My lineage goes back to Benjamin. I can prove that I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But he counted that nothing for the sake of Christ. Sometimes it's not so good. The returning exiles in Ezra chapter 2, verse 62. Certain exiles were coming back from Babylon. And they were like, hey, we're Levites. We want to be priests. And so they went to the records and they said, you know what, I'm sorry. You're forbidden to be a priest. Why? Because we can't find your name in the registry. Your name's not on the list. So you could say you were someone big. Okay, Jesus says he's the son of David, the son of Abram. How do we know that? Oh, you can say that. But unless there's a record, unless you can prove it, sorry, all bets are off. And so we see Matthew's genealogy has a record. It goes all the way from Abraham to Jesus. And so Jesus could prove that he was the son of David and he was the son of Abraham through the genealogy. And so why would Matthew open up with a list of names? Why would he open up with a genealogy? I believe there are two main reasons that Matthew wanted to show forth by opening up with a genealogy. The first is to show that the Old Testament, all the Old Testament history, everything in the Old Testament points to one person, Jesus Christ. Everything that we just read, all of those names, that's a history Then These are lives. These are people. These were people of God. These were the good, the bad, and the ugly. These were the ups and downs. And through it all, everything in here, every purpose in the Old Testament, from Genesis to the last book in the uh, Old Testament, Malachi, everything points to one thing, Jesus Christ. It all points to Christ. And Matthew wanted to show that everything points to Christ. And number two, what does Christ do when he comes? Christ came, for one thing, to save sinners. That's the work of Jesus Christ. He came to save sinners. And we're going to look at this genealogy and see exactly how he did that. First, we're going to look. And see that Matthew wanted to show that all of Old Testament history points to Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 17 again. And let's read that. So all the generations from Abraham to David were how many? Fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, how many? Fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, we have fourteen generations. Okay? So Matthew lists three groups of 14. And from David, from Abraham to David, 14. From David to captivity, 14. And from the release of captivity to Christ. What's the purpose of the 14? What Matthew was doing was showing history. He broke up. History in the Old Testament into three sections. From Abraham to David. Then from David to captivity. And then from captivity to Christ. The first section is the rise of the kingdom. Matthew wanted to show the rise of the kingdom. And it started by who? Going to get a little history lesson here. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man called Abraham. Out of where? Mesopotamia. And he calls him into the land of Canaan. And when Abraham gets there, we heard Brian praying at the beginning. When he gets there, God gave Abraham three specific promises. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make that great nation dwell in this land and give them this land. And through your seed, all of the nations of the world will be blessed. So we see God making Abraham a great nation. I'm going to give your descendants this land. But before that happens, your descendants are going to be enslaved for 400 years in a strange land. Anyone know what the name of that land is? Egypt. And so they were enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, but God was going to rescue them. And so God raised up a prophet named Moses and sent Moses to deliver the people. And Moses came and delivered the people, right? And Joshua brought the people into the promised land. And we see people coming into the promised land under Joshua. And they begin to conquer and they begin to take over the promised land. And then we see uh, uh, kings rising up, right? And we see Saul and then we see King David. Right? And so King David rises up and he's at the top of the, uh, uh, um, on the throne. And Israel now came from a man named Abraham who was one man who was barren, who was like 75 years old when God called him, whose wife was barren, he was a senior citizen, had no children. And then we see the fulfillment of God's promises that he gives him a son. Then his son has two sons. Then his one son has 12 sons. And they go into Egypt and they multiply. And 70 people went into Egypt. Millions came out. They go into the promised land. And all of a sudden when you look, you see David on the throne. And you say, look how faithful Yahweh is. Look how faithful God is. He gave a promise to Abraham. And Israel was the greatest nation in the world. At the time, of that time in the world, they were the greatest nation. And so they were saying, look at the faithfulness of God. And so God fulfilled the promises to Abraham. He gave Abraham the land that he promised. Right? He made them a great nation. But we were still looking for that son. Who is that seed? We're going to find out. During that time, from Abraham to David, God was raising up and establishing a kingdom. And when He was establishing that kingdom, He was raising up prophets, priests, and kings. And these prophets and priests and kings were helping build the kingdom of God. Who knows who the greatest prophet in the Old Testament was? Moses. And let's look, he raised up a Moses, the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. And what did Moses do? He failed miserably. At the waters of Meribah, when Miriam died, and the people began to complain because there was no water, what happened? God said, Moses, I want you to go and speak to the rock. And it'll gush forth water to give people water and their cattle water. God's concerned about even grumbling people. How many say? And so Moses was angry. Moses was very angry. He's been putting up with this for years, the grumbling. And Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, said, You're a bunch of rebels. And he took it and he hit it twice. And God said, Moses. And water came out. God still fed the people. And God said to Moses, Because you dishonored me and didn't esteem me highly and you didn't believe in me. He goes, now you're not going to enter the promised land. And so Moses failed. But what was Moses' failure? What does it teach us? It teaches us that we're not looking to a Moses. It teaches us to look to a greater prophet that's going to come. Someone who's not going to fail in the future. The promise that was made to Abraham of this seed that's going to come. The the promise that was made in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 about this, 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 this seed of the woman who's going to raise up and crush the head of the serpent. They were looking for this promise. So Moses wasn't it. Though Moses was faithful, he failed. Then God raised up a high priest. How many know who the first high priest was? Aaron. On the first day of the job, what did he do? He made a golden calf, an idol. and said, Israel, this is the God who took you out of Egypt. The first day on the job, the high priest failed miserably. And what does Aaron's failing teach us? That we're looking for a great high priest to come. We're not looking for a high priest among men. We're looking for the great high priest that one day is going to come, who's going to be the, the high priest between men and God, who's going to be a faithful high priest who will not fail. And then God raised up kings. The first one was Saul, the people's choice. Who was the second one? A man after God's heart? David. Nothing bad about David, right? He was the best. David, the greatest king in the Old Testament. We sing songs. I want to pray like David prayed. I want to dance like David danced. I don't want to be like David. I admire David. I don't want to be like David. Because if you look at what David did, he did a lot of messed up things. And I do a lot of messed up things. So I can just be myself and be like David. But we still praise God for David. But what does it teach us when David failed? At the top of his game. Israel was on top of the world. They had it all. All their enemies were defeated. They had all the land. They had all the prosperity. They had all the blessings of God. David had like five or six wives by then. And one day when he was out, supposed to be out to war, fighting, He went on a rooftop to relax. And he looks over and he sees a very good-looking woman on a roof bathing. And so he inquires, who is that? Oh, that's Uriah, your servant's wife. Gotta have it. Gotta have it. Bring her over. And he has sex with her, and he tries to hide it. Then he gets an email a few days later. (laughs) I'm pregnant. David takes Uriah, who's out on the field fighting where David should have been. This man was a, a mighty man of valor who risked his life many times for David. He was a man that was faithful. He was, a, he was a heathen that converted to Judaism. And he was fighting for the king, loyal. And so he came to David, and David got him drunk and tried to get go home, sleep with your wife. Maybe, you know, you will think you got her pregnant? Wakes up the guy sleeping on his front steps. What are you doing? He goes, how could I go sleep with my wife when my brothers are out there risking their lives for your kingdom? I couldn't do that. And That was a rebuke to David. So David gives him a note. He goes, "Here, go back to war. Take this note and give it to Jeriah." He gives him his own death sentence in his hands, and he carries it. and He says, "Listen, go to the city, approach the walls, pull back, right, and leave him there." And he died. So David greatly sinned, and God was angry at David's sin. But what does David's failure teach us? That we're not looking for a man to rule us. We're not looking for a king to rule us. We're looking for the king of kings. We're looking forward to Jesus, to this other king who's going to come and sit on the throne. We're looking for the king that God promised David, one of your descendants will sit on the throne and his throne will reign forever. We're looking for the seed of Abraham that's going to come and through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. We're not looking to David, to Moses, though we praise God for them. We're not looking for them. They're not the ones we serve. We're looking to the one, the man that God is going to raise up in a faithful one. So Matthew records this whole period under the first 14 generations, from Abraham to David. It starts with Abraham and ends with David. Israel's on top of the world. God has fulfilled his promises to Abraham. His descendants are now inhabiting the land. And then Matthew inserts his second group of 14 generations. And from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. In the second group, he doesn't start with Solomon. you think he would because we just went from Abraham to David. And then you would go from Solomon down, right? No, but he starts with David. Why? He ended his first one with David, his first list, and he starts the first list with David. Why? Because of David's sin. David was on top of his game, and David, through David, the kingdom was established, and Israel was at the pinnacle. David was the pinnacle of all Old Testament. And while he was on top, David was also the cause of the demise. Of the kingdom. In all the Old Testament. We see Abraham to David. David sinned. And now we see a decline in the kingdom. From David to captivity in Babylon. It's not a pretty story. David's sin with Bathsheba. Was a turning point in the Old Testament. David is the pinnacle and apex. Of the Old Testament. And he is also the reason for its downfall. But wait a second. David wrote Psalm 51. Cleanse me Lord. I have sinned. Wash me with this up and I may be clean. I mean, didn't God forgive David? Wait, I thought God forgave David. God graciously forgave David. Praise God for Psalm 51. How many have read Psalm 51 weeping many times? I know I have. But sin has consequences. Sin has severe consequences. And God never disowns his own. But how many know, as a Christian... You've sinned and you've seen the consequences. You know God loves you. You know you're a child of God. But you've seen the consequences of your sin. Am I the only one? And we know that sin has consequences. But listen. At the end of the 14 generations, we see a downfall from David. We see Solomon. He starts out good. Ends up bad. We don't know if he ended up bad. In the middle, he was bad. He had 700 concubines and 300 wives. That's tough. (laughs) You know? Um, Then we see his sons, Solomon's sons. Then there's a split in the kingdom. Before David became king, the kingdom was divided. Who brought the kingdom together? David. Now, because of the sin, we see the kingdom split again. And then we see wicked king after wicked king. Then maybe a good guy comes. But then he messes up a little. And then a wicked king. And finally, God patiently waiting, sending prophets. Repent. Please repent. Israel, come. Let's reason together. Repent. Repent. Prophets coming. Repent. And finally, God raises up his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, to come and destroy the very nation that God built. And we end up at the end of the second chapter, uh, section 014 and God raises up Nebuchadnezzar and commissions him to come and destroy the temple we find that in 2nd Kings chapter 25 and so Nebuchadnezzar comes and he wreaks havoc in the land he destroys the temple he tears down the walls he captures Jerusalem he captures the city and look at what David's sin did David who was on top sinned the decline look at the results of David's sin When Nebuchadnezzar came, he undid all the works of Solomon. What did Solomon build? Who destroyed the temple? Nebuchadnezzar. He undid all the work of David. What what city did David capture? Jerusalem, the city of God. Who captured Jerusalem? Nebuchadnezzar. He undoes all the work of Joshua. What did Joshua do when he came into the promised land? He possessed the land. Who is possessing the land now? Nebuchadnezzar. And he undoes all the work of Moses. What did Moses do for the people? He brought them out of what? Bondage. What did Nebuchadnezzar do to the people? He brought them into bondage. Because of sin, God destroyed all the work that he previously did. And the children of Israel, listen, they were right back where they started from in Mesopotamia. They went back to Babylon. And that's the very place where God called Abraham out of. And so we see a full circle of God calling Abraham. God blessing Abraham. God making promises. People getting enslaved. God sending a deliverer. Bringing them out. We see the faithfulness of God. And we see them at the top. And then we see great sin. And then it just was, it was David's sin. But listen, the others who followed were just as sinful. And they began to sin. And God began to send prophets saying, listen, please repent. God was weeping. God was begging them to repent. But God was patient for hundreds of years and finally even God's patience ran out. And God raised up and they ended up right back where they started from. Depressing story, right? There's hope. <laughs> what are some of the things that we can learn from this? There are several, for instance, that God is holy and will not tolerate sin. God is holy and will not tolerate sin. That sin is severe and has severe consequences. That God is not just dependent upon a man. God is not dependent upon man to build his kingdom. How do you know that? Well, look at the track record. They all fail. That God is very patient. And that God is capable of destroying everything and starting. We see that in Genesis chapter 6. He destroyed the world and started over with Noah and his family. But what I want to focus on, excuse me, something even more wonderful God's faithfulness. When we read the history of the Old Testament, we see failure after failure after failure after failure. And what does it remind us of? Our own failure. How many read and you point at them, what's wrong with these people? But then when you look at life, they're, wow, I'm the same way. <laughs> you know? I mean, if if, if if my genealogy was up there of my sin, if there was a genealogy of all the record of my sin, well, any of us, any any of us sins, who would not run out of this room right now? Right? Who would not run out and say, oh, I'm undone. You know? But God is faithful. How many times have we made a train wreck of our lives? How many have made a train wreck of relationships, your lives? Yes. Good, I'm not the only one. And in spite of our sin and failure, we see the gracious and merciful hand of God picking up the pieces of our broken lives and making sense of the madness. Look at it. Abraham, David, captivity, and then we're going to get to the good part. But up and down, we see up and down. And through it all, God was faithful it all, God never stopped being the God of his people. God never gave them up, even when they were in slavery. He told Moses, I hear the cry of my people in Egypt. When they were in Babylon, they were still God's people. God didn't give up. Through life's up and downs, through peaks and valleys, God is working in the lives of his people. The Apostle Paul said best, and I love this verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. All things work together. Oh, you mean that this is going to be good for me? It's going to work out good, and I'm going to get no, you might you might get fired. But God will even use that for the good. And what's the good he's talking about? God's good is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. So God, all of the Old Testament, the ups and downs, had one. Purpose in mind, it was pointing to one thing, one person. Who? Jesus Christ. As Christians today, God's goal in our life is pointing towards one thing. What is it? To conform us to the image of Jesus. So through all of life's up and downs, through our sins, through our struggles, through our, our, our train wrecks in life, God is even using those things. They hurt. They're not good. But he uses those things for our good to conform his children into the image of Jesus Christ. And so we see God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. And even in captivity, when the Jews were in captivity, what do we see? We read stories about men like Daniel, women like Esther, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We see God's faithfulness keeping covenant with his people, even in captivity, and God showing up and blessing them and loving on them, even in captivity. Why? Because God never divorces his people. He'll punish them, he'll discipline them because he loves them, and his image, his desire is to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. But God's people, thank God, didn't remain in captivity. Now we turn to the third section of 14. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. In the 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, we see that Jesus is now being presented as the new David. Abraham to David. We see the rise of the kingdom, David blue. But now we see... From captivity to Christ, we see a new trajectory. It's not aiming towards any man, it's not aiming towards any institution, it's aiming towards one person, Jesus Christ. And it's funny because when you read through this last part of the genealogy, how many read the story and you love the story about uh, um, uh, Elijah? (laughs) Who? (laughs) Exactly. How many love the story about um, you know this guy uh, uh, Zadok? What is that? Exactly. The names are very obscure. There's no great names in this second, third, last portion of, of from captivity to Christ. In fact, it's called something theologically. It's called the 400 silent years. Why? Because you don't see God doing great things. There's no prophet. There's no priest. No great priest that we know of. No great prophet coming. And no king. Why is that? Because God is not going to build his kingdom on the backs of prophets, priests, and kings. Why? Well, look at the track record. It failed. God is going to build his kingdom on one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. So the new trajectory from captivity to Christ is a glorious trajectory because it's pointing Everything in the Old Testament, every institution, every person, every prophet and priest and king, everything that happened was pointing to one thing, to Jesus. He was pointing to, listen, the the seed of Abraham, the one that's going to come, he's the one that's going to fix everything. David, the one that God promised David, this man's going to sit on a throne, he's the one that's going to reign forever. And just so you don't think that God is going to build His kingdom on the shoulders of men, listen to Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government, and of the peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David, and over His kingdom, to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And who will perform this? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Every institution, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? Isn't that good news that, listen, do you have a plan for your life? Give it up. Give it up. Is it good to plan? Yes, it's good to plan. But do you really think that you're going to carry the weight of all your troubles and all your problems and you have this great plan that you're going to be this so-and-so and 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 such-and-such? Jesus is the one that's going to mold and shape our lives. Jesus is the one that has a plan and a purpose for our lives. And when we surrender to him, he's the one that's going to bring to fruition the plan that he has. There's a way that seems right unto a man. But the end is destruction. And we see that through history past. Men with good motives, good intentions. But guess what? They were men with wicked hearts like the rest of us. Frail, weak men. And we see that everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus Christ. And that was Matthew's purpose. He wanted to show, listen, this Jesus that came, everything was pointing to him. And now he has come. So now Matthew says, okay, I just showed you that everything in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, now let me show you why Jesus came. It brings me to the second point. Matthew wanted to show that Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Well, how do you know that? Well, let's just look. When we read through Matthew's genealogy, we're startled by some of the names, aren't we? Remember, this is not Joe the truck driver's genealogy. This is Jesus Christ, the son of God's genealogy. Let's take a closer look and and look at some of the names. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1. And let's look at verse 3. Are we there? Let's look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob. You know about Jacob, right? Jacob was an honest, straight-up guy, right? Never swindled anyone. Jacob was a swindler. He stole his brother's birthright, deceived his father. Jacob was a character. But God changed Jacob. And Jacob wrestled with God. And God gave him a new name, Israel. So Jacob found grace in his genealogy. But then Jacob had a son named Judah and his brothers. Guess who God picked to be in the genealogy of Jesus? Joseph, right? Who is the most faithful brother out of them all? Joseph. When Joseph was fleeing from Potiphar's wife, what was Judah doing? He was having sex with his daughter in law, who was playing a prostitute because her first husband died, Jacob's first son, I mean, uh, Judah's first son. And so it was the right for the second son to marry her to keep the seed. But the second son knew it wasn't going to be his seed, so he spilled the seed on the ground and God killed him. So now Judah has the third son, but he's young. So he tells the wife Tamar, hey Tamar, listen, go home and live with your father. And when my, soul's old en- my son's old enough, I'll give him to you and you can get married. She went away and Jacob's like, no way, this woman is bad luck. She killed two of my sons. I'm not going to give her the third. She stayed at her, uh, her father's house for years. And finally one day she was so hungry for the blessing of God, she wanted the, that seed. She did, went about it the wrong way. And I could not this. But she went and played the harlot and sat on the roadside where she knew Judah would be coming by. And he didn't recognize her. And she called him over and he did the business and she got pregnant. When Judah found out, he said, burn her. And she said, well, the person who got me pregnant, these things belong to him. And it was a step. And he said, you're more righteous than me. So here we have a story of a, a man named Judah, right, who God picked to be in his genealogy why didn't God pick... Wasn't Joseph faithful? Wasn't Joseph a son of Jacob? Why did God pick Judah and not Joseph? Well, why did God pick me and not the guy down the street? Why did God choose you? Mercy and grace. It's the grace and mercy of God. Anyone in a genealogy is not in because they're good. It's in because God is good. Anyone sitting in this pews today, right now, who is serving Jesus Christ... We're not serving God because we're good. We're serving Him because He's good, because He chose us, He loved us, and He graced us with mercy. But here, they give birth to a son named Perez. Perez was the product of an incestuous relationship, and God put him in his genealogy. Gets better. Let's go to verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Who was Salmon? We really don't know. He was a Jewish man, he probably loved the Lord. He's probably faithful. He's probably a warrior, a fighter. And there's probably a big scandal in this town. Hey, did you know who Simon married? Rahab. Rahab. Do you know who Rahab is? Do you know Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho? And everyone knew her house because when the spies came in, they went right to her house. And when they heard there were spies, the, the officials came right to her house. She was on the wall. So Rahab was like the town heart. And everyone went to Rahab to have a good time. But when Rahab saw the spies come in, she said to them, I know your God is the real God. And I know the fear of your God is on everyone. We heard what you did to the Egyptians. And we heard what you did to the kings beyond the Jordan. And she said, just, I'm going to spare your life. Just spare my life. And Rahab put her faith in this God. And God redeemed this parlot, this pagan, and brought her in to the lineage of Christ to be a, a, a child of God. And it's through these people that Jesus came. And then we see this. In verse 5 again. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. But who's Ruth? Ruth really wasn't a uh, loose woman. She she was a good girl. The only problem she had is her lineage. She was a Moabite. And if you read in Deuteronomy, chapter 23, verse 3. It says, no Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord because God had a curse on them. So here, the law shut Ruth out. She wasn't allowed to be part of the assembly of God because she was a Moabite. And the law shut her out. But grace drew her in. The grace of God drew her in, made her one of the people of God. By grace alone. And then finally we see David. It says here in verse 6. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon. By the wife of Uriah. It doesn't mention her name Bathsheba. Why? Because Bathsheba is not really the one. It's trying to stress. It says David. By the wife. Of Uriah David took somebody else's wife but God even cleaned that mess up and Solomon came out of it so what do we do when we look through this lineage what do we see why would Matthew again why would Matthew put these names in I mean listen if you want to make someone look good would you put harlots and murderers and people who had incestuous relationships into your genealogy would you put them on your resume? No. But Matthew did. Better yet, God did. This is the word of God. And God was not ashamed to put those names there. And why would Matthew stress this? Well, listen, when you know a little bit something about the author, you, you learn a little bit about his writings. Who is Matthew? He was a tax collector. Do you understand what a tax collector was? That's like an alien force invading America. And then I start working for them and I start collecting money for you to pay them. And I even charge more. And and I'm working for the enemy. And I'm taking your children's uh, lunch money away so I can give it to them. And then I'm filling my pockets too. Jews despise tax collectors. They were called publicans. They despise them. And that's what Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew was a sinner. He was despised by the Jews. And you know what? One day Jesus walks by and says, follow me. And Matthew understood the mercy and grace of God. So when Matthew puts the Rahabs, when Matthew puts the Tamars, when Matthew puts the uh, 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 Bathshebers, right? And in in the genealogy, he doesn't see it as a scandal. He sees it as mercy. The mercy of and grace of God. Because, you know, you would think, put the good people, come on, you know Matthew, put the good people. Don't you want Jesus to shine? Matthew says, yes, I want Jesus to shine. And Jesus shines greatest when you set the grace of God against the backdrop of sin. The grace of God is beautiful. And how many of us can identify with the genealogy? How many of us live the life of sexual immorality, maybe of prostitution, maybe a murderer, maybe not physically, but maybe in your heart, hating people, maybe full of rage and anger, maybe full of lust, maybe full of greed, a sinner. And one day, you heard Jesus say, follow me. That's the grace of God. No one is sitting here today because we're trying to build our own kingdom. We're only here today by the grace and mercy of God. And Matthew wanted to show in his genealogy that everything points to Jesus. And when Jesus comes, he's going to fix everything. He's going to fix our lives. And one day we're going to be in paradise with him. But for now, we do struggle. For now, we do face temptations and trials and struggles. But praise God that just like in the Old Testament, through the ups and downs, God is faithful. Maybe you don't know the Lord today. Maybe you're not a Christian. And maybe when I read the the genealogy and you saw those things, you think, you know what? My sin is too bad for God. Listen, no sin is too bad for God. And Jesus is not ashamed of us. That's the beautiful picture. Jesus is not ashamed to be associated with sinners and tax tax collectors. He hung out with them. That's what he came for. Jesus came to save sinners. I'm going to say something very bold here, but forgive me. Who's it? Is there any good people in here? Do you think you're a good person? If you're a good person, I got news for you. You're in big trouble because good people spend an eternity in hell. Who goes to heaven then? Sinners who acknowledge and repent and put their hope in. the only one that the Old Testament pointed towards. Jesus Christ as the only hope who came to save sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for your word, God. It's so relevant and real to us today, God. Father, we thank you that we have a genealogy that we can look into and see the beauty and grace of God. That Christ came to save sins. That everything does point to Jesus Christ. And Lord, no matter how messed up our lives might be right now, if we're in a valley, if we feel like we're captive to some sin or struggling, we know that you're faithful to your people and you always bring your people out. And at times you discipline us because you love us, but you never disown us. We love us so much. You never disown us, Lord. And we're so grateful that we heard that voice one day that said, follow me. And you, by grace, called us, and we are your own. So, Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your love and mercy. And we thank you for the genealogy of Matthew. It's all grace, Lord. And we thank you that you graced us in Jesus'